Welcome to NARAL's The Morning After. Each Thursday, our podcast brings you the latest on reproductive health care, progressive politics, and the fight to keep abortion safe and legal. NARAL's The Morning After is a production of NARAL Pro-Choice Ohio. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at ProChoiceOH. Enjoy the show! Hey, I'm Jamie. I'm Elena. Hi, I'm Gabe. Uh, so, Jamie, we were at the Supreme Court this week. We were. What'd you think? It was rough. I mean, it, it's really funny it's because... It's for it. <laughs> Jessie Hill is amazing. She's an attorney for, um, that works sometimes with the ACLU. Um, she's a named chair of a department, I think, and everything. Her resume is ridiculous. Professor Harvard, Hill. Yale. Yeah, oh. Professor Hill, constitutional law expert. Did an amazing job arguing for our side. But I think what really flabbergasted me, and I'm used to this in the state house. We're used to some random rando person coming up and just spewing inaccurateness. Right. And, but ha- happening in a courthouse with an attorney, like from the attorney general's office, like salary that my tax dollars pay getting up there and just like... It made you angry? Yes, it did. It made yeah. me very, very angry. So the uh, the case is Preterm v. Kasich. Mm-hmm. It's actually a longer name, but I'm just shortening it to Preterm v. Kasich. Um, Mostly because that's fun. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so Preterm uh, is suing John Kasich mm-hmm. uh, as governor for... Having signed into law a budget res- uh, a budget bill mm-hmm. in 2013, in this case, uh, that included multiple abortion restrictions. Yes, the budget is supposed to be a single subject bill. All bills oh. are supposed to be single subject, and the subject of the budget is supposed to be the budget, not mm-hmm. the budget plus abortion restrictions. That's different subjects. What? So they've filed this case. Preterm has filed this case saying that adding in abortion restrictions. So uh, there's specifically pointing to the transfer agreements and some of the provisions from uh, an earlier version of the six-week bill. Back then, you know, everybody was calling it the heartbeat bill, so they took some of the elements (laughs) out of that piece Mm -hmm. of legislation, not the abortion ban, but Mm -hmm. all of that, wedged it into the budget and passed that in 2013, Preterm is saying, no, no, we shouldn't have to follow all of these restrictions because they were passed illegally as part of what should have been a single-subject budget bill. Yes. Hmm. But this case wasn't about that. Yeah, that was the part that I didn't realize <laughs> until it was over. So, but, so this has been a case that's been going on since 2013. Wow. It's 2017. Let's think about that for a second. And they're still arguing over whether or not preterm has standing and the ability to sue the state. So they're saying that an abortion provider doesn't have the right to sue the state about abortion restrictions because they can't prove that they've been harmed by the restriction. But they have been. Right. So, you know, they're not like... Capital Care where in Toledo, where, you know, if they lose this case, they're going to close. Um, but it does. It's an un, it's a extra burden of paperwork. The transfer agreement has to be signed every two years instead of just something that automatically renewed every year like the previous ones. They can't turn to public hospitals like Metro any longer, so it limits their options on where they can get transfer agreements. Luckily, they've been able to continue to secure one from university hospitals up there. Right. But, you know, at any time, university hospitals could say no, just like Ohio Health did here in Columbus last year to founders and, and everything else. 
But then also the ultrasound restrictions and, you know, punishing doctors for not following stupid informed consent laws where they're they're forced by the state to give medically kind of ambiguous information about health care to their patients and those kinds of things. Right. So they're definitely impacted by these laws. The fact that the state can argue that they're not is just ridiculous. Right. But for four years, that's what we've been arguing about. Yeah. I've uh, I've been working on uh, <coughs> a, a description because we're we're looking to the state to put out their annual induced abortion report, um, which tells us how many abortions took place uh, in a year. And so I was putting together some materials for that. Uh, I started thinking about it because uh, we've seen this trend of fewer and fewer abortions every single year, and that's been going on since 1990. That's mm-hmm. not due to partisan politics. Um, in some cases, it's due to increased health care, so it's not always you know, a good thing or a bad thing. Um, but we're looking at why it's happening here in Ohio, and sometimes the rate of change increases or decreases dramatically. When they put these sort of restrictions in there, in, in preterm's case, you know, the transfer agreement thing, this isn't the clinic that's most threatened. I mean, mm-hmm. Capital care is yeah. at, you know, at risk of closing immediately. When they put in the forced ultrasounds and the mandated counseling and all of that, you kind of have to look at it almost from a business manager point of view. Mm -hmm. If you are running any sort of a business, uh, if there's something that gets put in place, some sort of rule or regulation that slows down your employees, forces them to take time, forces them to use extra resources, that reduces the number of, you know, customers or patients that you Mm -hmm. can see in a day. And so by passing a forced ultrasound rule, you're telling the clinic they have to take some of their resources and take up some time and it just slows everything down. Mm -hmm. You know, if, if, if this was a standard business and you told the business owner, Hey, we're passing a new regulation that's going that, that doesn't benefit anybody. Yeah that's going to reduce the number of patients that you can see or customers that you can see, you know, however you want to mm-hmm. phrase it, they would be livid. I mean, look at the national EPA clean air rules and, you know, how the coal companies are screaming from the rooftops and forcing um, Trump to repeal Obama era rules and stop things from being enforced and everything else. I mean, that is exactly the same kind of things they've been doing on abortion clinics since Kasich took office. Overregulation for absolutely no reason. In the coal companies' cases, we all kind of need to breathe, and it'd be really nice if our air was cleaner. So actually, right. there are needs for those rules. So you right. know, again, this is a completely different scenario because these don't increase patient safety. They don't impact anything. Right. Yeah. They're clearly designed to prevent women from accessing abortion, and I really believe that one of the big ways that they reduce access <laughs> is by just slowing down how clinics can see, you know, it just, it takes a doctor's appointment and it makes it that much longer, Mm -hmm. which means they can see that fewer patients and it's already a waiting period to get into a clinic. Yeah. This is part of it. So I think that especially in preterm VKSIC, the mandated ultrasounds is the bigger, Mm -hmm. uh, the bigger argument here. Yeah. You know, both of these uh, transfer agreements and ultrasounds should be, Mm -hmm. you know, knocked because they are violating this very clear single subject rule. Yeah. Well, and to bleed into some other court news in other states, I think one of the other pieces of the ultrasound is the shame and stigma piece. Mm -hmm. And, you know, 
there is no need for an abortion clinic to do an ultrasound and listen to fetal heart tones and do all these things that's required by Ohio law other than to kind of rub women's face in what they're doing and shame them and put additional stigma on them. And so... Exactly, which yeah. is why in a federal court in Kentucky, yeah. determined it was unlawful to yeah. force ultrasounds. And this week decided that, um, yeah, that can't stand any longer in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. So that was really good news out of Kentucky. Yeah. And that was a piece of the preterm case here too, is the, the additional stigma and shame that goes along with these required things. Luckily in Ohio, they aren't forced to hear the heartbeat and aren't forced to hear the descriptions and those kinds of things that the doctors in Kentucky were forced to do. Mm -hmm. Um, They have to be given the option to hear those kinds of things. So Ohio's law is slightly better, but not dramatically. (laughs) Right. So what's next for the case then? Um, In Ohio, um, we wait and see what happens. I, I don't know how you guys talked about the capital care case, but I mean, the because um, <coughs> I wasn't here. But you know, the House Supreme Court are politically elected, just like our other statewide elected officials. So it is a five Republican to Democrat court. So you know, the the chances are against us in the first place because of that. Um, and yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see. In, in general, cases are handled within like six months or so, but our lawyers have said that they've had cases sit there for a year and a half. So it's at this point, just to kind of wait and see. Hmm. Right. Uh, Elena, you brought up Kentucky. Um, uh, and you know, that's, that's a terrific point. Um, the courts there, uh, struck down a requirement for ultrasounds, um, and this was, uh, you know, showing the woman fetal images. This was clearly an attempt to try and shame women. They had to listen to a heartbeat. Um, Kentucky isn't the only state uh, in the Midwest that we're looking at to see um, changes to policies. Uh, in Indiana, a federal judge permanently struck down provisions of an Indiana law uh, that would have banned abortions sought due to fetal genetic abnormalities and required that aborted fetuses be buried or cremated. So... This is uh, a couple things that deal with current legislation that we're looking mm-hmm. at right now. Um, the uh, you know the fetal uh, tissue burial requirements, um, but then also this applies directly to uh, the Down syndrome case that we're looking at. Yeah, so you know, two of Ohio Right to Life's three legislative priorities for the fall have just been struck down in Indiana. So be you know nice if our Ohio legislators kind of looked to Indiana, our neighbor to the west, and said, "Hey, wait, maybe we shouldn't bog the taxpayers down with paying legal fees for an unconstitutional bill that we're going to pass." Right. Yeah. You know details. <laughs> <laughs> My taxpayers, your taxpayer, the, the taxpayer dollars. They should go to you know helping people, not stupid lawsuits. Uh, and then good news in, in a, a third Midwestern state, Illinois, which I saw this and I was kind of like, really? <laughs> uh, Illinois' governor signed a piece of legislation into law that says that abortions may be covered by private insurance and also Medicaid. Woohoo! That's amazing. Yes, mm-hmm. it is amazing. <laughs> Look what good things legislatures can do when they aren't bogged down by doing ridiculous bad things. Right. So can you kind of describe for people exactly why that's important? <laughs> Basically, it just, I mean, it allows 
more access, and particularly for low-income communities, families, women um, who rely on Medicaid to be able to, you know, access abortion care should they need it. Yeah. As simple as that. Yeah, I think... It was really interesting. You know, we talked to um, folks all the time, and and sometimes talking about funding, public funding is is something that's a little tougher because you know you get this argument of well, my taxpayer sh- dollars shouldn't go towards something I don't agree with. Well, you know, there are a lot of people who don't agree with war and you know militarizing our police and everything else that happens with our tax dollars. And no, uh, we can't get decide what our taxpayers go- dollars go to. But um, I was you know there. I was talking to somebody recently, and they're like, of course, taxpayer dollars should go for this, because if a rich woman has access, a poor woman should have access. Mm -hmm. So this really does, you know, equalize the playing field, because if you can't pay for it, you don't have access. And it doesn't matter if Roe versus Wade stands, and you have the right to an abortion. If you can't access it, none of that matters. Right. This was uh, (laughs) one of the arguments that I thought came up um, that was pretty uh, important to look at during the discussion on the 20-week abortion ban. Um, you know, uh, uh, Peggy Laner, Senator Laner, um, who's the former head of Ohio, Ohio right to life, um, uh, very anti-abortion. Um, she was trying to claim that none of the abortions that happened 20 weeks or later are due to rape or incest. She says by then they've taken care of that already. Mm-hmm. Uh, which, you know, I, I don't believe her at all. Wow. No. Um, but then they also tried to minimize the number of abortions that took place at 20 weeks or later because of fetal abnormalities. They said, oh, this doesn't really happen that often. Mm-hmm. And so I sort of looked at it as a logic puzzle. It's like, okay, well, if you're saying that it's not because of rape and you're saying that it's not because of fetal abnormality, then what's mm-hmm. left? And she was really clearly trying to just claim that women are lazy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think if you if you take out, uh, you know, abortions that happened because a woman was raped and you take out fetal abnormality, the big thing left that you're not talking about is how are women paying for these procedures Mm -hmm. and how long did it take them to come up with the money to pay for an abortion? So, you know, if, if you want fewer second trimester procedures, then the clear way (laughs) to, Mm -hmm. to reduce the number is to make it easier for women to afford first trimester procedures. Yes. Well, and not put 24-hour waiting periods in place and not, sure. you know, make all these hurdles for them to jump. But yes, yeah, I mean, that is really one of the biggest reasons why women delay access to care. And and unfortunately, it, it kind of snowballs on so many women because if you need $500 at, you know, nine weeks and it takes you two more weeks, three more weeks to come up with that $500, you're now at 11 and 12 weeks and that price has gone up because the procedure gets is still safe, but gets more complicated as you go through pregnancy. So, so often a woman will finally come up with the you know previous amount that she needed and now needs additional funds um, to be able to get the procedure. So it does, it snowballs on poor women. Right. Um, so we'll definitely be keeping an eye on uh, Illinois to see, um, you know, we're, we're looking at Ohio's uh, data on how many abortions are performed here and what other statistics we can find. Illinois' data is going to be really interesting mm-hmm. to look at because, uh, you know, I- ideally we should see uh, some good trends here, both in terms of, uh, you know, how women are, you know, how, how frequently this is being used by women, um, but also what other sort of positive mm-hmm. health effects come out uh, from that. Um, 
as we look to Ohio, we still have uh, this Down syndrome ban has been getting quite a bit of headlines lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, it hasn't had a hearing since the last time we talked. Um, so that's one thing going on at the state house. Um, yeah, and right now it's not really going anywhere. Um, the house is taking a couple of weeks off for some reason. They just randomly do that. So, um, right. <laughs> so they're not actually back in session until the week of the October 9th. So we're looking at the 11th is probably the next time we'll see that hearing. Um, we're going to try to pack the room. It's 9 a.m. on the 11th. There's a Facebook event page. You can find it on our Facebook page. Um, so um, that's coming up. But then next week, um, we are actually seeing a Senate vote on the reappointment of Ohio Right to Life President Mike Gonadakis to the state medical board. <sighs> Right. <laughs> so here's a guy who has conflicts kind of all over the place. So, yeah. you know, he's got the conflict of he's the president of Ohio Right to Life and is on the state medical board. He was for a year president, actually, of the state medical board. So, you know, he's president of an organization who complains to the state medical board about abortion providers, and then he's the one who investigates them. Think about that for a second. Right. But then also, interestingly, last year when Ohio passed the medical marijuana stuff, a lot of the rules on how physicians can dispense and the dispensaries and those kind of things are going through the state medical board. And interestingly, Mike Gonadakis also does some private consulting as a lobbyist for various places like the pet store, Petland. And and then he picked up and added a couple of marijuana organizations as a lobbyist. So now he's lobbying for these organizations that want to be able to distribute legal marijuana in Ohio. And again, on the state medical board, making rules for how marijuana gets distributed in Ohio. Right. So yeah, that's wow. happening tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, not tomorrow, next week um, on Tuesday at three fifteen. So keep an eye out for your email. We're going to let people know about this and, I think also the biggest part that I think just angers me on kind of a basic level is how he talks about abortion not being health care. Yeah. So here's somebody on the state medical board that regulates doctors who provide abortion because it is health care. I mean, Ohio law requires a doctor to do it. If it's not health care, why do you what require a doctor <laughs> yeah. to do? And, you know, and here he is at a press conference two weeks ago after the capital care case behind a sign that says abortion isn't health care standing next to somebody from Created Equal who stands outside of healthcare providers' offices and harass them, drives trucks around their neighborhood and calls them murderers, and then cites statistics from Operation Rescue where Cheryl Solinger, their co-leader, spent time in prison for attempting to firebomb an abortion clinic. Right. So this guy who hangs out with all these upstanding citizens, air quotes, is on our state medical board and in charge of regulating medical providers in our state. Yeah. It's... It should not be. No. (laughs) So that'll be coming up next week. Keep an eye out. We'll put some stuff in the show notes on that too. Okay. Uh, So from state legislation uh, and and state crazy medical boards um, (laughs) to national stuff... uh, Graham Cassidy, Cassidy Graham, uh, came up and went down. Uh, it, it has failed. Uh, tomorrow was supposed to be like the big showdown date, September 30th. 
Uh, but they just clearly did not have the votes. Nope. Um, so Obamacare stands, um, and uh, yet another attempt to uh, destroy the Affordable Care Act uh, gets thrown in the uh, <laughs> what's Pen's uh, ash heap of history or something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, it's dead. Woohoo. I mean, there's um, plenty of reasons, plenty of places where it could come back in various forms and, you know, budget reconciliations and things like that next year and those kinds of things. But for now, all the calls, everything worked. Right. We'll see yeah. what happens. Yeah. yeah. Definitely. Defeated the zombie bill for now. But uh-huh. <laughs> for sure. I think it just goes to show um, what we can do when we continue to organize. And I think we do. We have momentum on our side. And people are seeing that these attempts are just, Ridiculous! Mm-hmm. Just deny people care. I mean, people see right through that. Right. <laughs> it doesn't stop people with pre-existing conditions from getting health care. Mm-hmm. Oh wait, yes, it does. <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 Trump tweeted that he said, "No, it doesn't stop people from getting, you know, uh, uh, care if they have pre-existing <clears throat> conditions." So, um, you've got the president tweeting things that are clearly wrong, uh, you know, and, and obvious <laughs> health professionals calling them out. Right. Um, All 50 states, Medicaid directors uh, stood together, signed a letter saying, hey, this bill is terrible. The usual uh, suspects in the healthcare community, the leaders, the American uh, Heart Association, Diabetes Association, all that stood against it. Uh, The the big headlines came yet again, a a second effort here spearheaded by Jimmy Kimmel of all people (laughs) um, to to take this bill on. It Mm -hmm. did not pass the Jimmy Kimmel test. Uh, And so that, you know, it's, it's really incredible, but I think more than all of the like actual medical experts, the stand-up comedian on late night Mm -hmm. TV Mm -hmm. talking to that audience that normally doesn't hear anything about these sort of, uh, you know, pieces of legislation, but him taking this clear stand was very effective in turning the tide against this. Mm -hmm. Uh, and honestly, you know, he, he kind of carries the water for a lot of advocacy groups like us that are trying to get people out and no matter how hard we try to to talk to folks, there's a, a level of saturation that we just can't achieve mm-hmm. that someone on late night TV just instantly gets. Yeah. And thank God he's used it for good. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Well, it goes back to our previous conversation about if the healthcare that you need exists, but you can't access it, does it really matter anymore? And I think that was his major point was at any point in time, I'm going to be able to afford the heart surgery that my baby is going to need. But you know, if, I mean, yeah, you know, factually Trump's tweet was accurate to a degree because no, insurers were still going to be required to provide a plan that would cover pre-existing conditions, but they could charge exponentially more money. So a woman who needed coverage for pregnancy, they could be surcharged like $17,000 for that. Plus all the premiums and all the, I mean, all the deductibles and everything else that you had to pay out of pocket anyway. Right. You know, so if you can't afford that coverage, it doesn't matter if they're required to give it to you, if it costs, you know, Fifty thousand dollars a year, you're not going to be able to pay it. So, right. 
Uh, Cassidy Graham. Uh, Cassidy is Bill Cassidy, mm-hmm. Senator Cassidy. Uh, Graham is Senator Lindsey Graham. Uh, one of the points that we were making on Twitter was that Lindsey Graham, when he was uh, running for president uh, alongside John Kasich back in 2016, um, you know, one of the things that we did uh, as just a natural part of the campaign was we looked at the anti-choice records of all of the candidates. Mm-hmm. You know, and you had a lot of big names out there. Mike Huckabee obviously is a horrible anti-choice extremist. Um, wasn't Newt Gingrich in the field? Yeah, He's, you know, uh, all of these guys. Um, Kasich, because of the sheer volume of votes that he cast in Congress and bills that he signed in Ohio, had one of the most extreme anti-choice records of all of the uh, all of the candidates mm-hmm. that stepped up on that that first stage. <laughs> what was it? Twelve, fifteen? I don't even remember. Yeah, that. far too many people. <laughs> Kasich had one of the most extreme mm-hmm. anti-choice records. Yes. He didn't have the, the most extreme <laughs> as long as Lindsey Graham was in the race. Mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham, because of the amount of time that he's been in Congress, has cast more anti-choice votes mm-hmm. than any other person that was up on that stage. You know, And you had people that were really rabidly anti-choice. Yeah. But they hadn't actually signed bills yeah. or cast votes. And All Lindsey dark, Graham, <laughs> the most extreme anti-choice record mm-hmm. of any candidate that was running in the 2006 presidential uh, race. Uh, and so this bill um, you know, would have done horrible things to women's access to health care. Uh, and so it's really good <laughs> that this didn't get adopted. I know there was a lot of fuzzy sort of questions about what exactly this bill would mm-hmm. do. It clearly would have destroyed yes. access to providers like Planned Parenthood. Uh, it, it would have been very bad for women's health care. Mm-hmm. Yes. But to prove that they aren't going to just stop being jerks now that that's mm-hmm. failed. Right. <laughs> like the same moment, it was almost in the same breath that Graham Cassidy died the headline changed to, and now they're going to vote on a 20, uh, federal 20-week abortion ban. Right. It's whack-a-mole. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh. So, yeah, so the House is expected, the U.S. House is expected to vote on the federal version of a 20-week abortion ban. From my understanding, it looks nearly identical to what Ohio passed and several other states have passed. Um, so, again, it's 20 weeks post-fertilization, not 20 weeks gestation. Again, using non-medical words that don't actually exist because we can't calculate fertilization. Right. So it's really kind of like a 22-week abortion ban because we don't calculate pregnancy from fertilization. (laughs) Go figure. Um, (laughs) Let's go to medical school before you regulate medicine. Right. So we'll see what happens. I mean, in the Senate, they have to get to 60 votes, and I don't know that they have the 60 votes, although... um, we do have Democratic senators who are not with us on abortion rights. Right. So, you know, it's probably easier to get the 60 votes on something like the 20-week abortion ban than it is repeal and replace of Obamacare. But um, the House, I mean, definitely has the votes to do it. So I wouldn't be surprised to see a successful vote on the 20-week ban in the House next week right. or the week after. So I haven't seen the legislation. I don't know if you have either. I haven't read the whole do, thing. But. Do, we, do we know this is pretty much the same piece of legislation as what Ohio passed? It's you know, Very similar. From what I've been reading, it sounds very similar. They didn't like start from scratch and coming up with the idea. They threw state mm-hmm. legislation on a photocopier and yeah. wrote mm-hmm. for Congress on the yes. top. Uh-huh, That's much. how it works. Uh-huh. That's exactly <laughs> how it works. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, so that's that's something that's very serious for the nation to oppose. Here in Ohio, however, we already have this law in place. Mm-hmm. Um, if it passed on a congressional level, and because it's uh, because it's unconstitutional, it would get probably you know a, a challenge there. If if a, a federal twenty week ban was enacted and then struck down. Would that also strike down state legislation? I'm kind of going out on a limb here and asking this. Uh, with the um, <laughs> with the disclaimer that I didn't go to law school and there's not a JD <laughs> after my name, um, it's generally my understanding that yes, if I mean because it would go through a federal court system. I mean there are already four or five challenges to the 20 week ban that exist out there. Right. And we've won every single one of those, but they're all still very early in the federal court system process. So it would kind of depend on whether or not what circuit it went into. I would guess they wouldn't try it in a place like Ohio, Kentucky, or, you know, Tennessee, because the Sixth Circuit sucks. Right. But, you know, you can look to, like, Illinois or one of those states to kind of start one of these things, um, especially when it's federally passed. So it would really depend on if there was a split in the circuits, because that's what makes the Supreme Court start paying attention to it. So if it was a fifth case where the court upheld it and everybody was kind of all on the same page, then the chances that the Supreme Court would take it up Right. or less, and we would need it to go all the way to the Supreme Court, and we would need to get a very broad ruling, kind of like we did on a marriage equality. Okay. So it could, but it's a scenario that would take a long time, and you know, depending on who else Trump gets to put onto the, the U.S. Supreme Court, could not go so fabulously. So, <laughs> so sorry, just to restate what you said, so it's straight in my head. <laughs> Uh, if if someplace, you know, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. much more liberal than yes. us, if they challenged it and it went through their federal courts up to a certain level and was struck down but didn't continue to get up to the highest court in the land, mm-hmm. that wouldn't apply at all to Ohio. No. Okay. It would have to go to a full yeah. Supreme Court uh, or if the case originated mm-hmm. from somewhere in Ohio, which is... Like we said, not likely. Yeah. Yeah. So you saw that with marriage equality. So you had various circuit courts, not the sixth, because we were the one who screwed with it up. Um, you had various court, different district courts, federal district courts who said, yes, bans on gay marriage are unconstitutional. And those like four or five states that are covered under that, then marriage equality existed in those five states. It took the U.S. Supreme Court with a very broad decision to make that happen in Ohio and all the other states that weren't under those individual pieces. Okay. So yeah. keep an eye on that. <laughs> uh, that's not the only thing that Congress is working on. Uh, Paul Ryan and Donald Trump have these ideas of passing tax reform. Um, you know, we, we have friends that, uh, because we work in state politics, have, have been talking about the impact of state budgets uh, so I'm used to looking at state-level tax policy, mm-hmm. but uh, I believe the, the principle applies at the federal level. Um, if, they, if they reform taxes and they give people a tax cut um, and, you know, they hand it out to your average person on the street, but then they also hand out a big tax cut to millionaires and billionaires, it reduces the amount of money available for the government to use. And so then when it comes time to actually fund programs like Medicaid and Medicare, they say, oh, sorry, we're out of cash. And the reason that they're out of cash is because they passed these tax cuts. And everyone thought, oh, I'm getting a tax cut. So this sounds like fun. 
but really it's just the beginning process of destroying access to health care and other important government uh, resources for people later down the road. Mm-hmm. This, to me, sounds very destructive. It's just harder to talk about than other direct threats to uh, to people's lives. Yeah, and I think another interesting similarity that I was thinking about, so one of the things they're talking about, they're talking about it as a blue state retribution piece. <laughs> um, and um, I guess a lot of highly democratic states have really high state and local tax rates because they have fabulous programs that they fund with these things like Medicaid coverage for abortion and things like that that exist in California. Um, and so in those states, the, that state taxes you pay are deductible on your federal tax. So you, yes, you pay a higher state and local tax rate, but then you get to deduct it from your federal taxes. So it kind of all comes out in the wash. Well, they're going to get rid of that so that all those blue states that didn't vote for Trump and all these people who are in office um, can't kind of hide under that, you know, oh, well, we can increase it, but you get to deduct it over here. So it's okay for your personal finances. All these people are going to pay way more in taxes because of that. And then, you know, Congress can say, well, we, we still gave you a tax cut. Mm. It's your local and state government that's the problem. So, you know, there's that and there's, there's all kinds of things, a lot of corporate tax breaks, because they say if they give corporations tax breaks, they'll hire more people. But corporations have been sitting on record amounts of profit for the last couple of years and don't seem to be hiring people now. So I don't know how, you know, increasing the amount of record profits that they're holding on to and giving to their shareholders are now going to make them hire more people. <laughs> it's all ridiculous. Right. It's okay. stupid. <laughs> they need to not do it. Okay. Um, we're, we're past the half hour point where I have to trim for radio. You want to talk about the NFL real quick or do you have other things you need to do? <laughs> we can talk about the NFL. Can we talk about not just the NFL? Cause it's not actually just the NFL. That's correct. Go right ahead. <laughs> so the NFL got a lot, really, really a lot of press about it, but actually, you know, other than really the person who started it all, Colin Kaepernick, not being right. employed right now. The players who are doing it aren't being fined. They aren't being, you know, punished by the NFL. But there is one player who is being threatened with um, major um, fines and and um, being forced to sit is Megan Rapone from the U.S. women's soccer team. She's the uh-huh. one player on the U.S. women's soccer team who is continuing to. She started it right after Colin Kaepernick did. Mm. She did it. Actually, they, were, they played a match in Columbus last year right after this all started, and she knelt for the national anthem. And at that point, U.S. soccer said, no, you're not allowed. It is actually a rule in really? the, the rules for the national team members. And, and my guess is that all national team members, I don't know if it's just U.S. soccer, but I know for sure it's U.S. soccer. So I hadn't soccer. heard this at all. Yes, I saw another article about it yesterday. So, <laughs> so yeah, so she's actually, they're actually threatening to fine and, um, and um, force her to sit and those kinds of things because she's continuing to kneel. She did it again, I think, last week at a match. Oh, you think after this past weekend that they've got to, they've got to drop that fine. I mean, it, yeah. they're going to look horrible doing mm-hmm. that. Uh-huh. I mean, they would have looked horrible before, but yes. now it's, it's, it's the Jimmy Kimmel effect. You're getting attention <laughs> in an audience that uh-huh. wouldn't have been paying attention beforehand. Uh, Jamel Hill, the uh, ESPN commentator mm-hmm. who's, you know, been uh, a big 
both target and subject of a lot of these discussions because she's been critical of Trump, um, which, you know, mm-hmm. completely in support of her there. <laughs> um, she was pointing out that the WNBA mm-hmm. was taking stands, you know, supporting Colleen Kaepernick last year during their season. Mm-hmm. So women's sports have been, uh, you know, much farther ahead of the curve on this uh, than the NFL has. Mm-hmm. Um which is cool. Yeah. Well, and I mean, the NFL really only exploded because Trump had his little hissy fit mm-hmm. on Twitter. I mean, you would not have seen what happened last week happen if Donald Trump hadn't sent those tweets out. You would have still had the smattering of players who right. who were kneeling already, continuing to kneel. But you would not have seen teams not come out onto the field and whole teams kneeling and those kind of, that And owners would, joining them. Yeah. 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 Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and and I think other people who are, are, they cover sports more than we do, (laughs) uh, have have really discussed this to death over the past week. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there is a a kind of a diluting of the message, you know. Oh, yeah. Kaepernick was clearly taking a stand against, uh, you know, a racist system. The, uh, the biggest and most egregious part of that was police violence Mm -hmm. against black and brown people. Um, it's, I think obvious that many of these uh, athletes that were participating uh, in the protest this week were doing it because they were standing together as teammates. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think all of them wanted to stand, you know, with stand up either or take a knee as, <laughs> uh, as black athletes who were standing, you know, uh, against the president and his comments or they were supporting their teammates. So, you know, I don't think anybody was taking a knee for the wrong reasons, mm-hmm. but they're all now taking a knee for a, a different set of reasons. Mm-hmm. Some of which, uh, are why Colin Kaepernick started this in the first place, but others, you know, are maybe just really angry that the president of the United States, uh, you know, called them some, some pretty nasty names, mm-hmm. which is a legit reason to protest, mm-hmm. yes. but it's not the same. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then there were a couple team owners that people were really scratching their heads and being like, <laughs> "You voted for Trump, really? Yeah, you you yes. donated millions yep. of dollars to his donated campaign? Donated mm-hmm. millions. Well, the optics look good, so right. join now for solidarity. Uh-huh. Well, yeah, and I think that is really it. Really has gotten diluted. It's become they're protesting the flag, they're protesting mm-hmm. the national anthem. No, they're no. protesting police mm-hmm. murdering black people on the street. <coughs> Excuse me. And so, you know, really making sure that that message doesn't get diluted, diluted further is, is really critical. And you know, we really need to be talking about it. Although I did <laughs> see somebody made the comment that, so if you think, you know, people protesting racism is people protesting America, you do kind of have it right because yeah. um, America is racist. Uh, <laughs> it kind of says more about you than anything else. Mm-hmm. But Yeah. Your right to protest. Yes. <laughs> that is actually being patriotic. Uh-huh. Yeah, I did like all the veterans who were kind of saying, actually, I fought yeah. to protect your right to protest. You can do whatever the heck you want to do. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much. Right. Okay. So uh, we'll see what happens this weekend. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of this weekend, uh, let's get it on. Uh, talking about upcoming events. Uh, 
Um, tomorrow in Washington, D.C. Uh, is the March for Black Women. Yes. Uh, Jasmine Burnett uh, joined us last week to talk about that. Um, should be a terrific event uh, on the National Mall. Uh, standing up for, you know, black women standing up for themselves. Uh, she was talking about many uh, uh, members of Congress uh, mm-hmm. are scheduled to be there um, to support the uh, the community of black women, uh, some of which include, like, Maxine Waters, who's really yeah. amazing. Awesome. Maxine, yes. yes. Uh, so we hope that that event goes good. If you happen to be in Washington, D.C., then mm-hmm. you can join that. Um, if you're here in Ohio, uh, in Akron tomorrow, September 30th, uh, there's a protest against crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, why is that important? Well, similar to what we did in Columbus and Cincinnati in July now, God, it feels like yesterday and forever ago. Right. Um, they, um, we're going to make sure that people understand that healthcare doesn't happen in crisis pregnancy centers. They are, um, centers that mislead and coerce women out of having an abortion. If the woman thinks that is the best thing for them, they should not be given misinformation and, um, made to feel shame and stigma because of that decision. Um, so we're going to make sure that people know where they can actually go and get real healthcare in Akron. Um, and, um, just make sure people understand what that center is. Right. Uh, so our supporters will be protesting against Pregnancy Solutions and Services, which is 3136 Manchester Road, Akron, Ohio, 44319. Uh, so tomorrow morning, 1130 to 2, uh, if you're in Akron, you want to participate in a terrific action, uh, we'll put the uh, Facebook event for this uh, in the show notes. If you uh, are on our email list, hopefully you've already gotten an email inviting you to this, um, you can sign up for our emails at prochoiceohio.org. Cool. Uh, and then the last one I got here is October 4th. The Repro Health Happy Hour um, is going to be uh, in October. Uh, Wild Goose Creative, 2491 Summit Street uh, in Columbus. Yeah, pretty much at like Hudson and Summit. Okay. Uh, <coughs> that's your neighborhood. You just I like, know. Walk I could home. like ride my bike, except for the fact that there's a bridge that's completely out which is like the main artery between my house and that place. So it actually is not as close as it seems at the moment. (laughs) At some point it's supposed to reopen, but it's not. I think the other um, thing we want everybody to do this week, this week we celebrated National Voter Registration Day. So everyone should go out and um, check their registration because Ohio has done a lot of purging and cleaning up and ridiculousness with our voter rolls. Everyone should check. Everyone. So Google the Ohio, we'll put it and put the links in the show notes too. But if you don't check the show notes out, do a Google search for the Ohio secretary of state. You can check your voter registration status. And if it, if it is not correct or you can't find your voter registration there, you can actually now register to vote on that same website. So we now have online voter registration in Ohio, so it's really easy to do. So check your registration and make sure that you re-register if you need to because the deadlines for this year's local election are coming up in a couple of weeks. But your voter registration will still be good for next year. Yes. So it's great if you can just uh-huh. Just do it now, it now and it'll be good forever as long as you keep voting, right. which you should do every time <laughs> you are able to. Okay. Sounds again good. and again. Okie doke. Uh-huh. Okay. We'll see everybody next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.